No, I, this is the best I can do. I can't grow a mustache or anything. It's oh, really? really? Okay, so it's just got it's the natural mutton chop, or like Wolverine almost. It's more maybe, like Wolverine. Or, I, I don't know. Okay. I just all say Wolverine. Welcome to Conversation on Tap, a quirky podcast that seeks to promote intelligent dialogue in an age of echo chambers and self-segregation. Pull up a stool, pour a glass of tasty beer, and join us each week as we discuss all the topics that you were told not to discuss in Polite Company. My name is Jose. And my name is Joel. This week we will talk about Pope Francis with Mike Lewis, the managing editor and co-founder of WherePeterIs.com, a Catholic media outlet that uh, seeks to defend Pope Francis against the more uh, reactionary and right-wing conservative voices. But for now, Joel, what are we drinking? So I am drinking, we are actually out of beers, except I found this at the back of my fridge. I think this is the last that my ne- my uh, my cousin um, brought me, and it's from Browery of Drilla, something west out of San Pedro. Actually, they call it San Pedro, but I have to say it's not my favorite type of beer. It's a blackberry saison ale. I'm not big on flavored beers except for chocolate, peanut butter, and mocha or coffee Ooh. beers. Yeah, but um, this one's not half bad. It's a uh, what seven point eight percent, and it's um, I think that it's called officially the dog ate my homework beer. Anyway, decent That's beer. Perfect. That's yeah. perfect for right now. Yeah, exactly. I'm drinking the delicious, the um, very comforting Negro Modelo, which is funny because it's it's kind of like a Good beer for a summer day, and it's kind of dreary outside, actually. That beer is good all the time, and it's got such a politically incorrect name. It is. uh, What does it mean? Black model? I don't know. Um, I don't know if that's really what it means, but uh, Trump just made a bad comment on models. I don't know if you saw that. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Right in the middle of a very serious discussion, he pulls that out. Typical of him. Of course. Um, we just finished our entire case of Negmodellos. That's why we're down to, seriously, one last beer that I just refused and my whole family refused to drink. So it's kind of interesting. But that is great beer. I'm very jealous of you. Oh, well, I needed something. Now for the segment of our show that we call Fred Talks. In this segment of our show, Joel and I will each share one thing that we are passionate about for two minutes, though we tend to be chatterboxes, so that isn't a strict time limit. Uh, This week, I want to talk about something I've been hearing that's pretty um, unsettling to me, and that is that God caused the coronavirus. You hear this from the right-wing loony pastors, people like Trump's buddy, Robert Jeffries, um, they're saying, you know, it's because of the gays or porn or abortion or a lack of faith or what have you, that God is punishing us because of the, I guess, just our behavior in general. But I, I want to push back against that and just say, like, God doesn't cause disasters, right? God is love. God is like the ultimate good. So he doesn't cause disasters. And to, to just demonstrate that I want to highlight two verses from the Bible. Um, the first one from John 9, 1 through 3. Jesus is having an exchange um, with some of his disciples, 
about a man who's blind. And uh, they're asking Jesus, who sinned? Who, who sin caused this man to be blind? And Jesus answered, neither he nor his parents sinned. It is so that the works of God might be made visible through him. So no one sinned. This is just, you know, a natural occurrence, but it is through Jesus' act of healing that the work of God might be made visible. And the other one is from Matthew 5.45. Um, Jesus says, God makes his son rise on the bad and the good and causes rain to fall on the just and the unjust. So natural disasters or viruses or basically things that are bad that happen. Um, I think people think that God has ultimate control over everything. And that's true in a sense, but also God gave up some of his control when he gave mankind, for example, free will, right? We are allowed to exercise our free will. Or when he created the laws of science, the laws of physics, right? Letting natural processes work itself out, whether that's, you know, earthquakes or volcanoes or hurricanes, tornadoes or viruses, right? Some of these things um, are just kind of the natural works of, uh, you know, nature. So I just wanted to push back. And you know, if, if God is punishing us <laughs> for anything, you know, I, I have to say he's punishing us for Trump. But <laughs> okay, right, so well, um, my topic actually kind of goes very um, well with yours because um, I want to talk about something called the Semmelweis reflex. People on the right who are more likely, I think, to um, blame humans for God or blame, I guess, our uh, sins for coronavirus and say God is, is punishing us are, I think, way more likely to have this uh, human issue called the Semmelweis reflex. Semmelweis was a Hungarian doctor who um, lived around the 18, um, 18, middle 1800s, and he was one of the first guys to really realize how important it was to um, disinfect our hands for doctors. Um, and he totally proved that um, you can save so many lives in hospitals um, just by disinfecting your hands and washing them well with, with good, good, whatever, bleach or whatever they had back in those times. But it took so many decades for doctors to believe him to follow his ideas. Um, basically his idea is just that, um, that humans, um, have this tendency to reject new evidence, um, or knowledge because it contradicts their norms. And I think that I had such a hard time believing that coronavirus was as serious as it was and, and to change my behavior and, and Humans as, as a whole have been super hard, and I think that it's just in our nature. And I think we have to do, be really careful to, to trust science. And when they tell us something is, is about to happen or is, is coming down the line, we need to trust them and, and get over our, our um, insistence on, on hewing to old norms. You know, but I think that's still the case, even though we've seen all of these policies regarding, you know, shelter in place, social distancing, and I hate to say it, but I'm seeing again and again, it's the older Americans, the older people, um, the greatest generation, if you will. You know, they fought the Nazis. They were killing the Japanese and, you know, the Pacific. Or, you know, they took on the Koreans and the Korean War, what have you. And so they, I don't know, they kind of have a blasé attitude about the coronavirus, despite all the evidence. Yeah, I've definitely seen it. But um, I, I think that... Uh, 
I, I hope at least that they're coming around um, because of course they're <laughs> the most at risk which makes the whole thing so ironic yeah exactly dear young people both our God has blessed us from him we have received mercy a short of God's love go out to the world so that by all right and so for this segment of our show Joel and I will be speaking with Mike Lewis uh, one of the founders or co-founders of Where Peter Is, an online uh, Catholic media outlet. Uh, Mike, you're a writer, graphic designer. You live in Maryland. You have four children. You're married. Yes. Maybe you can uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. Um, so basically, uh, my background, I grew up Catholic, cradle Catholic, raised in a fairly conservative Catholic environment. In my 20s and 30s, I was maybe more of a, a reactionary pseudo traditionalist. Um, and then one day I kind of woke up and uh, realized that I had never um, experienced one moment of joy in my faith in my entire life <laughs> up until that point. Um, uh-huh. And so I sort of had this journey of, of self-discovery. I read a lot of Pope Benedict, um, The Joy of Love, a lot of these words about faith, not a list of rules, but an encounter with the person of Jesus um, and a relationship with and friendship with a person. And I also had a great pastor who had a extraordinary heart for the poor and for accompanying people. And then Pope Francis got elected. And, and when he was elected, uh, what that did for my faith, I felt he stepped into my life, like right at the moment that I needed him. I understood what he was trying to do. I understood his message. And I was a huge fan right from day one. I was gobbling up, reading all of his speeches and uh, Evangelii Gaudium, the joy of the gospel, which was one of his, which was his first apostolic exhortation. And I was like, this guy gets it. This is, you know, this is beautiful. This is what I've been looking for. And then, you know, lo and behold, maybe six or seven months into the papacy, I'm starting to notice that a lot of, you know, friends and family members who had been my brothers and sisters in the faith were acting suspicious about his words, were starting to criticize him. I started to notice that, you know, Catholic media outlets that I had once trusted were starting to call into question his orthodoxy. And, you know, this built over the ser- over a series of a few years, and I had built up a little bit of an online community of people who were on the same page as me. And we got together to uh, start a website. So where Peter is, it comes from a quote by uh, St. Ambrose of Milan. Uh, His statement was, where Peter is, there is the church, there is eternal life. And um, as the successor of Peter, Catholics believe that the Pope is where we can look for that consistent, true teaching. but unfortunately, a lot of Catholics, especially on the on the right wing nowadays, they look at Pope Francis and they just don't have that trust. They don't have that appreciation and they don't seem to get him at all. So while I don't think it's everybody's job to get in there and, and, and get down and dirty and debate their talking points and to sort of explain where they've gone off track, I believe somebody's got to do it. And that's kind of the that's the void that we've stepped into. So about what year did you start uh, Where Peter Is? We launched it in February 2018. And 
we started out, it was just four of us. Um, we were doing a post or two a day. We were getting, you know, if we got 200 hits that day, we'd be like, yeah, wow, a lot of people, you know, have read us. But then we started to get attention from the Pope's biographer, Austin Ivory. We got attention from bishops, cardinals, Vatican journalists. People were approaching us and asking us if they could contribute. So it came to the point where now we're publishing one or two pieces a day. We we're consistently getting 60,000 visitors a month, which isn't huge, but it's a lot more than we were. Um, and, you know, we've been mentioned in the New York Times, in The Atlantic, by NPR, not to mention a bunch of Catholic media outlets. And a lot of people have referred to us as the voice of sanity standing up <laughs> to these reactionaries. Yes. So, yeah, we've been proud of that. And, and we're going to be launching a, po- a podcast of our own soon. So treat this like a, a trial run. <laughs> I will promote that podcast here on this one. Um, oh, well, thank you. Yeah. Uh, and I know some people who have written for uh, Where Peter is, like Joe D'Antona. He's one of our good buddies. Joel, do you have a question? Because I know you kind of follow this as like an outsider of the Catholic yeah. Church. Yeah. I'm not a Catholic, but I follow a guy named um, Andrew Sullivan, who's a very devout gay Catholic. And um, and he loves the new pope. And I love the new pope like you do. And I know Jose does. And I'm just trying to figure out, well, what are the main beefs for, for one? What are the main criticisms that you're seeing from these um, reactionaries? Well, a, a lot of them seem to twist his words. One of the things that Pope Francis does is he doesn't lead with the doctrine or, right. uh, or necessarily uh, care how American conservative reactionaries are going to respond to the things he says. So he might speak to gay people, for example, and say, God loves you. And the message that they want to hear is, yeah, yeah, we know God loves everyone, but we want you to say, God loves you, but we want you to change your behavior because you're, you know, you're going to hell. Or there's an openness that he expresses and people I guess, depending on what their disposition is towards him, maybe fill in those gaps with suspicion. So he says, he says, God loves you. And he doesn't say anything one way or the other about the morality. And so they assume because they don't like him or they don't trust him that he is, uh, you know, that he's a heretic or, um, you know, other things that he says, he's the first Pope of the social media era. And because of that, so much of his content is put up on the internet the same day he says it. Now, Pope Benedict, you know, he overlapped with the, with the beginning of social media, but he was much more deliberate um, about what he said off the cuff, what he did not say off the cuff. He would always try to square the circle, you know, when asked a theological question. He made sure that all those dots were hit to make sure that everyone was clear on his theology. But it's funny because you hear some of the stories about John Paul II and the things that he said during his airplane interviews, and the reporters wound up writing from a cleaned up transcript rather than Uh, his actual words. Um, Yeah, that's all changed now. Yeah, but I think 
for whatever reason they are trying there's there's a deliberate attempt to attack his message they associate him with marxism and liberation theology and the things that he says about capitalism the things that he says about putting the economy before people uh, these things are nothing new you know if you look at what John Paul II and what Benedict and basically what every pope going back to the to the late 1800s has said about the rights of the worker and the dignity of the individual human being, there's nothing new yet. Also about yeah. what Jesus said. I mean, oh yeah, right. It's so confusing to me. It's just like you look at what Jesus, how Jesus treated prostitutes, for instance, and. And just it, it jibes so well with this pope, and and to hear people uh, just diss him for that, it's just super confusing to me and, and to so many people. I just don't get it. Yeah. I want to figure out where it's coming from. So here's the thing: as a movement, because it's a large, and and this is something I don't think a lot of bishops realize. I don't think it's a, what a lot of people within the Vatican bubble realize. But at the grassroots parish level, and Jose, I don't know if you if you can relate to this um, in California, but in in the D.C. area here, we have a very uh, they call it the Catholic Mafia because it's uh, huh. a lot of intellectual Catholics who work in, in the government. They work for the Heritage Foundation. They you know they sort of run in these in, in these very uh, right wing circles. But they, they're sort of this mentality where they, they pick apart these pieces of Francis's teaching and they present, this pope isn't really Catholic, this pope is a deviation from what Jesus has taught, he's undermining years and years and years of doctrine, and um, basically low-information Catholics are picking up on this vibe. You know, they may not even read a document that he wrote. They've sort of got this impression that he's this liberal and, you know, to them, liberalism is bad, that he's contradicting centuries of teaching. And it, it sort of builds up this air, this mentality that opposes, that's been opposing him. And so it's a combination of people who are willfully attacking him and building up a following of people who are without realizing the nuance or thinking about what he's saying. And it's starting to really infect the church, or it has been for the last you know, four or five years. It's, I'd say it's making a serious impact, and especially so, with young priests and with seminarians, mm -hmm. which is what really scares me. So it sounds like we've kind of turned a corner and, and this isn't just business as usual because, I mean, there's all every pope has had tons and tons of critics. I mean, so but this is maybe new to some degree. It is um, the last couple of popes have been seen as conservative, um, which is debatable. I think in some ways, if you if they had been presented differently, we would think that they were, you know, especially talking about the poor and, and economics. But what's the difference between, and this is the difference between left-wing Catholics, at least my observation, and right-wing Catholics. Left-wing Catholics will say, I disagree with the church on this teaching. They'll say, the church is wrong about women priests. and Or they'll say, the church is wrong about birth control. Whereas the right-wing will say, I speak for the church, 
the Pope is wrong. He's not speaking for the church. The right isn't going anywhere. And they are the ones who, who insist that they're the holders of Catholic truth. A Catholic progressive, you know, once they've had enough, they'll just say, I'm leaving. Yeah. Catholic conservatives on the right will dig in and say, the church is wrong and I'm right. Yeah. And although they won't say it like that, they'll say the church, this is a counterfeit church and I'm the real church. Right. And so it's, so they have to be dealt with and responded to in a completely different way because they're not going anywhere. Yeah. If that makes any sense. Yeah. So, I mean, we have turned a corner, it sounds like, and I'm yeah. just, I'm trying to put it like in, into context with what I'm seeing in history. And I think that societally we may have turned a corner and I'm kind of trying to figure out if this is going hand in hand with what I'm seeing in society with, with so many people. I think that for instance, that Trump could do, I, not necessarily kill somebody on Fifth Avenue, but he can do with it whatever he wants right now, and he'll still retain his his followers. And I kind of wondering if this is sort of hand in hand, you know, going hand in hand with that. Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit different because Trump is the leader, whereas um, you know the Catholic Church, the Catholic right has these folk heroes, like, I don't know if you, like Archbishop Vigano, the former U.S. Uh, ambassador who wrote the, the letter accusing Pope Francis. Well, now he's giving interview after interview where he's saying that the Pope is the precursor of the Antichrist and the world is going to end wow. and, and that the coronavirus is ret divine retribution for the sins of the church. Or you have uh, Cardinal Burke, who uh, it, who used to be the Archbishop of St. Louis and and then he was transferred to Rome, and then Pope Francis demoted him. But he's going around the country, talking to crowds, talking to media outlets. And it's amazing, because one of the things that, that my website does is, you know, I unearthed this audio of Cardinal Burke. So I, I don't know if you remember when Pope Francis changed the official teaching on the death penalty in the catechism. John Paul was was against the death penalty, but he, he left what people consider a little tiny loophole in the yeah. teaching. Like basically if there are no other options, you know, it can be just. And Pope Francis essentially closed that loophole and he did it yeah. in a very official way. Like the, the CDF, the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith issued an official document. You know, he ordered a change in the catechism to say that the death penalty is inadmissible, you know, and ordered that it be translated and published in every language. And then I found some audio of of Cardinal Burke speaking to an audience in Wisconsin where he was asked a question about the death penalty. And he basically said that this has no authority. This is just the opinion of Pope Francis as a man, not as a Pope. And if I were you, I would buy a copy of the old catechism and keep it in a safe place. Until we brought it up, nobody had mentioned this. Wow. And that's the incredible thing. Because of my roots sort of in that reactionary movement, I just sort of have an ear for these things, or I follow these things. A lot of, a lot of, you know, Catholics who support Pope Francis are very much like, don't pay attention to these people. And they have a point. Um, they say, who listens to them? These guys are wackos. But the problem is, I concretely know people in my life who follow these people who hang yeah. on their every word, who believe what they're yeah. saying. And so in many ways, 
we're the voice of, hey, guys, what you're listening to is not what the church is really teaching. What this guy is doing is not in line with where the church is going. And, you know, this is why. Can you guys tell me why the Pope can't just, uh, I guess, disfrock the guy? I, I don't get it. He he seems to be just completely opposed to everything that the Pope does. Is the Pope just being completely patient and maybe too much so? Uh, he possesses the right to excommunicate him, defrock him. It, the way that the church's law is set up, he could, he could take any kind of uh, disciplinary measure. I, my guess is that it's the Jesuit in Pope Francis who's happy with bringing people to the table with disagreements, say your piece. I think in some ways he may be worried that if he was to take disciplinary action against him, that he could be made into a martyr yeah. worldwide. I don't know how big his influence is. I just know that there's a significant minority in the U.S. church who is taking it seriously. And that's where we feel called to step in and intervene. I mean, if it was up to me, yeah, I would have done something. (laughs) If I was Pope, that problem would have been taken care of long ago. Yeah. Burke and his lace would be gone. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But you you bring up something that's awesome about this Pope in his willingness to just hear every voice he's been so awesome about bringing everybody to the table and not just catholics as a former lutheran i mean he's great with with bringing all faiths and and of course other than christian faiths too it's just been so beautiful i love it yeah oh yeah and i mean he spent time with german lutherans and swedish lutherans i think came to the vatican and and met with Mm -hmm. him and and he's extremely close to to the orthodox yeah the jews and the Muslims, uh, yep. which a lot of the reactionaries are not very happy about either. Of course not. No. So my question then is, looking at kind of the landscape here, this is primarily an American trend. It's not a global trend. This is an American conservative right-wing movement. Correct? I would say yes, although I would call it an Anglophone trend. The churches in, in Australia and England are not as big, but I would say probably among the Catholics, the percentages are similar. And there's also a connection to the Brazilian church. There's a, an organization, and we've written six or seven stories about them, called Tradition, Family, and Property. They have roots to the 1960s Brazilian dictatorship. They're a, a right-wing populist movement. And they are very unhappy with Pope Francis, and they have an American branch, which Cardinal Burke has ties to. He's spoken to their spoken at their events. The Bolsonaro uh, government is very opposed to Pope Francis, and they were very active in the Amazon Synod or working against the Amazon Synod last October because they saw it as a threat to their their economic uh, viability and their and their richness. Or their wealth. But mostly, when it comes to media, it's American media for the most part. Mm-hmm. And then my follow-up to that then is, I kind of see this bizarre alliance between Catholics who are politically conservative and conservative Protestants. There's, Would you agree with that? Yes, absolutely. And I think, I think part of that is the fault of our two-party system. It's funny because when you look at the, at the divide between 
Democrat Catholics and Republican Catholics, you have on the right, you have people who emphasize the like the sexual teachings, the the sexual morality, abortion, those issues, they tend to be Republican. And then on the left, you have the social justice, the poverty, health care, um, economic Catholic social teaching people. And unfortunately, what I've seen is that rather than the Catholics in each party helping to bring the party closer to that Christian teaching, unfortunately, it's taking those Catholics and making them more like the political party. And so uh, the Catholics on the right are starting to mirror the Christian right, or they're already there. That's interesting. Um, I think that I think the Trump administration has has pushed them to the limit um, yeah. as far as that goes. And then on the left, there the position on abortion has become you know there should be no restrictions on abortion and it should be free for everybody. And the Catholics and, in the Democratic Party have been unable to impact that either. So it's right, it's an interesting right. dichotomy where it seems that the parties and the ideologies have been influencing the Catholics instead of the other way around. Interesting. Yeah. I totally see that. He seems to me, the other thing that I love about him is his, uh, his favoring compassion over rules. And, um, and I, it just seems to jibe so much with conservatives love of rule following and, and law and order and his practicality. Also, I, I read just recently orthopraxis over orthodoxy. I thought that was super cool. Yeah. Actions speak way louder than, than words to him. And it's, it's so interesting that uh, conservatives are so interested in, in – it's almost like the difference between Old Testament versus New Testament, you know, and rules versus love. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and that's one of the issues that we've talked about recently with the example of Father James Martin. I don't know if you followed – any of that, but Father James Martin is a Jesuit priest. Uh, he writes for America Magazine. He's based up in New York, and he has a ministry to LGBT people. He's gone on the record and has said multiple times that he's never going to challenge what the church teaches uh, regarding homosexuality or you know LGBT issues. However, in the way that the church reaches out to these people, to people, he's not going to emphasize the doctrine so much as the idea that God loves you, you have a home in the Catholic Church, we want right. to listen to the challenges that you're facing. And the problem, the thing that his critics don't seem to realize is that LGBT people, ones who have grown up Catholic or have encountered the church, all they hear is the but, you know, yes. God loves you, but, but. you know. Yeah. And the fact that he doesn't put that but in there, that he lets that Jesus loves you, you are welcome, I love you, I want to listen to you, he lets that resonate, he lets that sink in, he lets th that encounter be their first experience of faith, rather yeah. than, here, here are the rules that you don't follow now, and I'm going to condemn you for not following them. I mean, that's oh, not yeah. evangelization. <laughs> And that's what I, I consistently have this argument because I'm an idiot, right, yeah. um, with the right-wing Catholics. And that is people who are Catholic and have same-sex attractions, they already know what the church teaches. That's exactly. pretty much all they know. 
So yeah, Father James Martin um, has been really leading the way in the last couple of years since the Orlando uh, nightclub shooting in Florida in saying to the LGBT, you're loved, you know, Jesus loves you. Like his book is titled Building a Bridge, right? So a, a bridge connects two sides. So he's not going completely to the other side. He's asking, he's inviting the other side. Uh, what I thought was interesting is how um, maybe conservative Catholics have been using the meeting between Pope Francis and James Martin as like a way to attack him. That ad limina meeting, yeah, where Catholic news agency um, had an article by J.D. Flynn, which basically said there are these anonymous bishops, these anonymous Catholic bishops who were talking to Pope Francis. And uh, apparently, in, in their telling, um, Pope Francis was really unhappy with James Martin um, after their private meeting. I thought that was interesting. Like they, The conservatives were willing to, I don't know, make an alliance, even just a short-term one, with Pope Francis to attack James Martin. Yeah, you know, I think in some ways it was their way of, of defending Pope Francis, because for them, James Martin is bad, period. So right. anyone who's good isn't going to agree with him or isn't going to like him. And this meeting was presented positively. Pope Francis told Father Martin to keep them, you know, keep the contents of the meeting confidential or don't speak them in front of large groups, but you can share with other, with others what, what, I, what we said to each other and how that went. And the photo opportunity looked okay. One of the claims in that story that the anonymous bishop gave was that the Vatican had spoken to James Martin's superiors and his superiors had given him a talking to. Right. Now, I spoke with Father Martin about this, and he said that that never happened. Um, there were 15 bishops in the room, and two of them went on record saying that the way that meeting was spelled out in that article was not what really went down. Uh, a third bishop, who many suspect was one of the anonymous bishops, Bishop uh, Archbishop Samuel Aquila, of, of Denver, he gave sort of a, he did go put his name on the record saying different people can interpret a meeting differently. And he also made a jab about if you understood Italian, this might be the way that you understood it. All right, I, yeah. att- I, I wrote an article. Well, I attempted to get a hold of Bishop Archbishop Aquila. I, I called, I emailed him, I emailed his spokesman. Finally, I sent him a message on Facebook through Messenger to him directly. And about 10 minutes later, I got an email back from his spokesman saying, you can read his comments in this CNA article, and he has no other comment on the issue. So he wasn't even willing to put his name behind the anonymous quotes that most people think came from him. Right. Because I was Assuming he was one of those bishops, nobody knows uh, for certain because he didn't admit to it, but there were only 15 people in the room. Uh, if you were unwilling to find a bishop that was that would put his name behind it, you might you have the list. It's a matter of public record. Just keep calling and seeing if this story is true. And if nobody's willing to put their name behind it, then drop the story. And as it stands, two bishops were willing to put their names behind saying that that story wasn't true. That has yeah. more credibility, in my view. Yeah. And why you would rely on what amounts to anonymous hearsay and call it a news story is beyond me. Yeah. 
So I think that's another question then. Um, I'm really appreciative of where Peter is. Um, you guys are kind of the, the sane voice <laughs> in this kind of crazy yeah. desert that we're in right now. And, um, you know, so I, I, I used to love watching EWTN, like On the Rock, Mother Angelica, you know, coming home. But now I find I can't watch EWTN. And, but they also own other outlets, right? Such as like yes. uh, National Catholic Register. Do they also own the Crux and CNA? No, they own CNA, not Crux. Okay. But what's there and what's EWTN's influence here as well? Well, I know I've well, saw I've seen Raymond Arroyo on Fox News. Oh yeah, so Raymond Arroyo, who he's been the anchor of this television program for something like twenty years, maybe longer, called The World Over. It's a Thursday night, one hour, probably the equivalent of a Catholic uh, Fox News program, or I mean, any kind of news magazine where he's the anchor. He brings in people via satellite. He interviews them. It's very clear, however, where he stands on the Pope, where he stands politically. Um, he brings in two other people, a man named Robert Royal and a priest from New York, uh, Father Gerald Murray. And the three of them together are the papal posse. And <laughs> basically what they do is they spend a half hour, you know, they're probably on every other episode. Uh, they spend a half hour bashing whatever the Pope did that week. And, wow. Yeah. I had no idea. So I've, I've written about his program three times. Uh, I know that Michael Sean Winters has written about it in the National Catholic Reporter a number of times. I wanted to do a series on on his show thinking that I could sort of like, okay, well, let me, let me pick out what he said here and tied together this well the the thing was i started watching and it was it just got worse and worse every single episode was him bashing pope francis over and over again he he had michael savage on his show and gave him this cream puff wow. interview um wow. he had sebastian orca on his show and and they were discussing i guess on the anniversary of the the a-bomb on on hiroshima and nagasaki pope francis issued a prayer card that said the fruits of war and it had a picture a famous picture of a, of a young boy who was carrying his dead brother on his back from from hiroshima you know so one side was the a prayer that said the fruits of war the other side was this picture and uh sebastian gorka said well it's more, more like fruits of peace and starts defending wow. the A-bomb. And I'm just sitting there with my jaw open. Raymond Arroyo is sitting there smiling and nodding as he's saying these things. And I'm thinking to myself, like, this, somebody needs to stand up and say something about this. Nothing at all controversial at all. I mean, yeah. it's, it's a long tradition of Catholic Church to oppose all war. So Yeah, well, and not only that, but, you know, even in just war theory, don't target the innocent. Don't yeah. target civilian centers. You know, I don't know that there's a more clear example of a violation of just war uh, than that. But uh, Sebastian Gorka said, this shouldn't say the fruits of war. This should say the fruits of peace because it ended the war and it led to peace. And if they hadn't done this and then gave all those lines that everybody hears when people defend dropping the A-bomb. But, you know, Catholics aren't utilitarians. And we can't say the ends justify the means that's that's just not 
part of our faith. We need to be consistent. We need to step forward and do the right thing in faith and not take gambles or commit war crimes for fear that something worse will happen. Because when we do that, we become like our enemies or like those who don't follow Christ. Yeah. Shocking to me, though, that uh, somebody can read the Bible and somehow miss <laughs> Jesus's central message. Again, it's just it's shocking. Yeah. Well, and I think some of the roots of this are found in American Catholic culture. Uh, Americans, you know, in the 50s and 60s were trying to become more patriotic, to be seen as true Americans. And I think that was the beginning of this politicization of the Catholic Church. And we began to align with political ideologies rather than putting our faith first. And under Pope Francis and President Trump, I think we've seen the culmination of this issue to the point where the polarization in the church is almost... I mean, it's difficult to foresee how we're going to work our way out of it. Now, the church gives us the key. The visible source of unity in the church is the Pope. So clearly the church says, this is the side you need to take. But unfortunately, most, or not most, but many Catholics don't heed that message. While they claim to be the most doctrinally sound Orthodox Catholics on the planet. And that's the contradiction. Yeah. Such hypocrisy. I, Jose, you and I have totally gotten into the issue of uh, a possible split. Do you see any chance of that because of this, or is that is that never going to happen? Schism. So the thing is, I probably about a year ago, I thought it was more likely than I do now. The like I said, there's that issue of the people on the right not going anywhere of their own accord. They, a lot of them have come up with excuses saying, oh, well, I still honor the office of the papacy. I still obey the Pope in his authentic teaching. I still listen to the things that he says that are in line with Catholic tradition. So they've sort of carved out their own niche that keeps them in communion with with the Pope in their minds. It, it justifies it for them. Okay. And yeah. on the uh, but it goes both ways. In the 1970s, um, there was a French Archbishop named Marcel Lefebvre who started his own movement in resistance to the Catholic Church after Vatican II. They still said the Latin Mass. They didn't accept the theology of the Second Vatican Council, and he was suspended uh, by Pope Paul VI, and eventually he was excommunicated by John Paul II. Like we said earlier uh, regarding Cardinal Burke, Pope Francis hasn't taken that type of action yet. If he will, I, I tend to doubt it. Now, there is a, there is another small movement that claims and this is much more tiny than the basic resistance, they claimed that Pope Benedict's resignation was invalid or <laughs> yeah. and that he's still really the Pope. Uh, that's yeah. one of the, the tough things about having two, two men dressed in white in the Vatican at the same time. They don't seem to have any legs behind them. Um, Cardinal Burke, uh, back in 2016, said he was going to 
he was planning to issue a formal correction of Pope Francis unless he agreed with certain teachings the way Cardinal Burke thought they should be taught. And he was going to get the cardinals together with him. From what I've heard is he never did it because he was never able to get any other cardinals to go along with him out of wow. the 220 cardinals there. So um, that it's approximately 220 alive and 120 are, are still eligible to vote for the Pope because they're under 80. So in, in the ecclesial sense or when it comes to actual people of prominence in the hierarchy, it's very small. I think there are there are a lot more lay people or you know regular priests that have the the motivation to do this, but I don't see I don't see at this point that it would happen or that people would yeah. would get behind that. Partly because Pope Francis hasn't made their lives that miserable. There, if if Cardinal Burke was to break off or was to deny <laughs> the papacy of Pope Francis, he'd be stripped of all of his honors and and his cushy apartment and. Even though a lot of what yeah. he's done is is backed by people who oppose Pope Francis, when he loses that gravitas or he loses that title, who's really going to want to stick with him? Right. Yeah. And to what extent has the Pope uh, sort of buttressed his own position by um, putting in, in place bishops that agree with him? I mean, hasn't he done at least a little bit of that? So like I was – I hinted towards earlier, once a, once a cardinal turns 80, he's no longer eligible to vote for the Pope. And just the way, you know, they're usually between like 55 years old and, and 80, and every every year or two, about 15 or 20 age out and or die, they become over 80. And so the Pope will name a new 15 to 20 cardinals. At this point, I believe he has the majority of voting age cardinals. It will now. It takes two thirds of them to elect a pope, but you also have to keep in mind that the College of Cardinals, as it, the other ones that are left over, are the same group that elected him pope seven years ago. Yeah. Sure. Right. So that's one of the things that I, where Peter is, has has tried to emphasize. It's like, hey guys, let's have a reality check here. Yeah. Where do you see the church in 20 years? Do you see it going the way you want it to go? Or or can you read the signs and see right. that this is the direction that the church is taking? Right. And I, it's really interesting to me to see, even in the church hierarchy, the desperation almost against Pope Francis. And so I think one of the more recent examples was Cardinal Sarah's book, yes. which was um, aimed against ordaining married priests. And there was a whole kerfuffle over whether or not Pope Benedict was a co-op. And it, to me, it's so interesting to see these conservatives um, in the church kind of latch on to Pope Benedict, maybe as like their avatar or as their um, Pope behind the scenes, which I think is kind of fueled by the whole conspiracy that, well, Pope Benedict didn't really resign of his own accord, he was kind of forced into it, you know, by some, I don't know, gay mafia or something at the Vatican. Who else would you say has our critics? We have Burke, Cardinal Sarah. Who else in the church is a critic? Um, well, Cardinal Mueller, who is the previous uh, prefect for the Congregation of the Faith, of the Doctrine of the Faith. He, he was he's a, he was a German who was appointed a German cardinal appointed by uh, Pope Benedict 
Um, and since then, he seems to have become much more radicalized. There's also Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano, who oh, yeah. was the uh, U.S. ambassador. And when his term was up, he was brought back to Italy and didn't have a position. But then he released a, a testimony, what they called a testimony back in 2018, accusing the Pope of covering up the sexual abuse of uh, Cardinal McCarrick, then Cardinal McCarrick. And he, it's interesting because a lot of people took his accusation seriously, even though he didn't provide any proof. It was just this 11-page document that listed something like 27 people saying that they were members of a gay cabal that was covering up for all these sexual crimes. And now he's reached the point where he's accusing the Pope of being an apostate and worshiping Pachamama in the Vatican. There's a bishop in Tyler, Texas, uh, Bishop Strickland, who seems to be the most reactionary of the of the Catholic bishops in the U.S. There's Bishop Athanasius Schneider, who is an auxiliary bishop in Kazakhstan. Now, I don't know that there are any other auxiliary bishops in Kazakhstan or, or any of the stands that anybody in the U.S. has ever heard of, but he's been backed and given this platform clearly by people who are opposed to Pope Francis. And he said some pretty outrageous things. So, but what it seems to me is that this movement is not necessarily so much backed by these churchmen, but these churchmen are being used as tokens or representations. Just like I said before, they're from the official church. So it's like, we have this bishop behind us. There are others that tend to be more unhelpful than anything. They they keep their cards close to the chest. Archbishop Chaput of Philadelphia, for example, undermined a lot of what Pope Francis had to say, a lot of his teachings, spoke out very uh, strongly against Father James Martin, for example. He distorted Pope Francis's teachings on ministry to a uh, to Catholics who had divorced and remarried, and that document Amoris Laetitia. It's interesting because I think that's, that's another big problem. It's not just these critics of the Pope, but these people who are standing by and not calling it out. They're not defending him at all. Yeah. They seem to be quietly just waiting for Pope Francis to go away and they can erase his legacy. That's kind of what I see as happening. They'll say nice things on the surface about him, like, oh, yes, he's the Holy Father, and he's, you know, our leader, and wasn't that address he gave on Friday just so beautiful? And then they will quietly continue to do things the way that they feel that they want to, rather than following his lead. Um, who are the great defenders of the Pope? Are there some that stick out in your mind? Yeah, absolutely. Um Obviously, Austin Ivory, uh, who's the biographer of Pope Francis, has been—he's been battling it out on the forefront. Um, there are also a number of bishops that have been very strong in defending him. Cardinal Napier is the—he's um, a cardinal based in South Africa. He's been very vocal. Massimo Fagioli is a theology professor from Villanova. He's been very outspoken in his defense of Francis. One of the problems is that a lot of the people who support Pope Francis don't pay any attention. Now, another name that's interesting is uh, an Englishman named Stephen Walford, 
who wrote a book ending Pope Francis. And actually, one of the things that happened was when Amoris Laetitia came out and four cardinals led by Cardinal Burke issue a document called the Dubia, basically five questions that were really trick questions that were intended to trap Francis into either pulling back what Amoris Laetitia said or admitting that he was a, a heretic. And I just saw so few people standing up and defending him. And then I realized, I noticed an article that came out in the Italian um, Vatican Insider in the La Stampa newspaper, written by a guy who um, had written a couple of books before and was sort of a darling of, of Catholic conservatism. And he um, wrote this article defending Amoris Laetitia and explaining how it was the intersection of truth and mercy, you know, and, mm -hmm. but with that emphasis on mercy. And I was like, wow, this guy actually thinks the way I do. This is amazing. And we got in touch and, and we actually, he was one of, he was probably the genesis of where Peter is. Now there are other people like Don Eden Goldstein. There's uh, Scott Eric Alt, who's a, a blogger. Um, Mark Shea defends the Pope. There are a number of people out there who, who really take this on and they come from a wide spectrum um, Christopher Lamb, actually, he has a book that just came out talking about this media campaign against the Pope, which I highly recommend. And where Peter is, I felt that there wasn't really enough coming out on a consistent enough basis that was in line with Pope Francis that was supporting his mission and vision. So we did what we could. And, uh, you know, I'm pleased with our growth and with our success. Yeah, absolutely. And then I also. Uh, you know, I look at people like Cardinal Tegel or um, Cardinal Tagelich. Oh, thank you. Yes. <laughs> I appreciate that correction. And actually, uh, I was thinking of, I thought of him when, once I moved on to the lay people. Yes, Tar Cardinal Tagle, who was just moved from Manila to, to Rome. And that kind of tipped people like, oh, is Francis giving us a hint here? Cardinal Tagle has been a wonderful, positive voice in favor of Pope Francis. Cardinal Supich, Cardinal Tobin, Cardinal Whirl was was a great defender of the Pope and the papacy. Were you sad? I was sad when Cardinal Whirl just... Yeah, you know, the thing is, they the, the Catholic right had his number since back when he was in Pittsburgh, because he actually shut down a few, like, rogue movements. And, I mean, Cardinal Whirl has his has his faults um but he's a man of the church like he's a he maybe too much of a company man but the thing is he actually did some like heroic things in the late 80s and early 90s about like not like he stood up to rome about not letting uh you know a priest go back into ministry because he was cleared in rome but he was like no this guy is a you know a sleazeball and and then found out it came came to pass three or four years later that the guy got arrested again for doing something. <laughs> yeah. And, and it sounds like he did lie at least once about, and the, the crazy thing is the story was he was told something about McCarrick in 2004 and he reported it to Rome and that became a matter of public record. Whereas before he had said that he had never heard about any of this before. So it's like, yeah, dude, you did the right thing. And then you lied about it, and 
like I think I think theologically he and I are very much on the same page, but you know, personality wise, I think Archbishop Gregory is a better match. So um I don't know how closely oh, yeah. you follow all the stuff. But they but the thing is it's like if you have bishop of some Midwestern diocese on your resume from the late eighties, early nineties, it's not gonna measure up to today's standards. And the other thing is he lacks the people skills to, I mean, he wanted to get out in front of it and, Mm -hmm. you know, defend himself. And when he did it, he made himself look like a fool. Yeah. You know, it's not good. I I would say that the vast majority of, of the hierarchy definitely supports the Pope. Um, Archbishop Wester down in Santa Fe has been very positive towards him. Probably too many to count, but the problem is, Who's getting the attention from the right-wing media? Who's getting attention from EWTN or, or CNA or uh, right. the National Catholic Register? And and the problem is, for a lot of people, these are the default outlets that people are going to. So, like uh, in California, in California, there's there's Bishop McElroy in San Diego. It's another is another name of someone who definitely supports the Pope. In talking to your friends, your parishioner friends just the common man on the street Catholic, do you see more uh, support for him or more antipathy? Uh, when he comes up, I, I tend to sense more antipathy. Um, like I said, in, in the DC area, we tend to, we tend to be a little bit more news conscious. It's just sort of, it's in our blood. I think people who don't follow Catholic news terribly closely are, are, positively disposed to him but i think those who follow ewtn and follow national catholic register have gotten this sense that he is heterodox or unorthodox and whether they follow it terribly closely they've they've just absorbed this culture quotes out of context and I think it's having a much bigger impact in the U.S. than most people seem to think it is. Wow, that's just shocking! It's it's the Fox News of of the Catholic Church. It's it's yeah, so yeah. interesting. And, and and I have friends who live in in you know in the Midwest and other parts of the country, and maybe their their friends and compatriots in the church aren't as tuned into church current events and Vatican politics and and. A lot of them have a positive image of Pope Francis and think he's a nice guy. They might have a sense that he's seen as a little bit more liberal, but that's not been my firsthand experience on the ground. My firsthand experience on the ground is that when his name comes up, uh, eyes start to shift and look around and say, are you on, are you on the same page as me? Or (laughs) I, I tend to keep a little bit quiet. I know that the conversations really don't go anywhere when they're one-on-one. They don't really go anywhere on Twitter either. (laughs) Part of the reason why I started the website is because we can lay out the full case, the full argument for a specific question or a specific controversy and explain it in its full context. And if people are willing to take the time to read it, and we try to be as factual as possible, we try to point people to the original sources as well as possible. I do know a number of people that we've walked back from the ledge and we very nice. frequently get, including a good friend from church. Oh, nice. that, 
so that's uh, that's good. And we get emails pretty regularly saying, thank you guys for what you're doing. You're like an oasis in the desert. Like they've used that image, oasis in the desert. Right. Uh-huh. No, you are. You're fighting the many, fight. Many times. Yeah. Well, for, for a lot of us, th- this is because even though my, my views were trending towards, I don't want to say the left, but towards, I, I try to be as non-ideological as possible. I'm not, yeah. I, I don't consider myself on the left or on the right. But I started to understand what the church teaches on immigration, what the church teaches on the environment, what the church teaches about the poor and healthcare. And until Francis became Pope and until he released Amoris Laetitia, there was still that compatibility between – there was still a connection. We were, I was still virtually on the same page. But then it was like I woke up one morning and a bunch of my Catholic friends now hated the Pope. And yeah. it it was like a zombie movie or, or, or where you wake up one morning and everybody's turned and yeah. you're the survivor and, and you're looking for other survivors that you can that you can have these discussions about religion and faith with without it turning into an ideological shouting match. Yeah. But what I find what I find so fascinating though is in reference to Amoris Laetitia, they're upset over a footnote in one chapter, right? Yeah. And in the footnote, he references, what is it, the, um, what is it called? Where you can go and speak one-on-one with your pastor, and he can yeah. accompany you if you were divorced and remarried Catholic. It's not like the door was, you know, flung wide open. Well, the right? footnote no does explicitly say, so the whole chapter is, let's assess where these people are in their faith. And if, let's say your situation hasn't become completely rectified, person has goodwill the person is is trying as hard as they can to to bring their lives into conformity with the catholic faith and because of where they are in their faith if the pastor in the context of accompaniment feels that the person believes that the person after discerning you know figuring out where this person is if this person will benefit from the help of the sacraments which is what the footnote says that's on the table now he's not saying you have to, a priest has to do this. He's not saying it applies in every single case, but the fact that yes, he did give an opportunity based on personal one-on-one confidential discussions that yeah. this might be appropriate in some cases. And that to them, I think they were expecting a whole document that said divorce and remarriage is now okay in the Catholic Church. And all they could find was yeah, one footnote that I thought was justified very well by the rest of the chapter. Yeah, um, They see it as a major change in doctrine. They don't think it has any authority over them. They think that the Pope has basically become an apostate. Or others, uh, some of the outlets I mentioned before, and people like Archbishop Chaput are simply saying, no, it doesn't say that. It says this. You know, It says mm-hmm. what the Church has taught from day one and it's it's a form of denial and i don't really know why here's the thing that gets me if you say that you're an orthodox catholic and that has always been tied to sticking with the pope i i just don't get why the, why there's so much resistance to the pope on these little things is it ideology is it misconception is it just this warped idea of I mean, now we don't believe that the Pope is this dictator and whatever he says goes, but there's that whole statement about how the gates of hell won't prevail against the church. 
and the Pope has that monarchical power and over the direction of the church. It's like, if you don't stick with him, you're going off in another direction. It, it just seems like a total contradiction to me. To me, human nature has always sort of, the, the rule followers have always chafed against any kind of inclusion of, of non-rule followers. And, and uh, that's kind of part of it, at least for yeah. my perspective. That's a good point. And we see that in the Gospels time and again, where the Pharisees don't like that Jesus is including tax collectors, you know, public sinners, what have you, at table fellowship. And time and again, Jesus leans in to love and mercy, and it's the Pharisees who are just pulling their hair out. And I think we see that similar pattern today. I don't want them in our club. Oh yeah, and and it's also like the older brother in 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 the prodigal son parable. Yeah, where yep. it's like, That's why are you making such a big deal about this guy and throwing him a party? And you know, I've been here the whole time, and I don't get a party. Yes, yeah. That's a great analogy. So, um, I what I love about Pope Francis, and um, I see they were over an hour, so I'll try to wrap it up here soon. Okay, I could keep going, but one thing I love about him is that he is big into going into going to the margins, going to the periphery, going to the peripheries. And, um, and I think people like to be cloistered with their books, with their theology, and they don't want to get their hands dirty, right? They don't want to make a mess by reaching out to people on the margins of society, on the margins of faith. And that's where Pope Francis, I think, thrives. Yes. Absolutely. That's where Jesus thrived, and that's where this Pope thrives. That's why I love the guy so much, and what a breath of fresh air. Not that, uh, what was the former Pope? I can't remember his name. (laughs) Benedict. Not that Benedict was horrible, like we've mentioned earlier, but uh, he definitely was was a little bit more of a, uh, he was less merciful, let's put it that way. And just the mercy that this Pope brings, that's what I love about him. He's all about mercy. Yeah, Benedict was a theologian, and yeah. and he was an introvert, and and I don't and I don't know that he was opposed to the things that Francis is doing, but I think Francis knows how to set an example. The images, the the washing of the Muslim women's feet, the embracing of the man that had the disfigurement of his face. Um, you see all these pictures of him. I remember just one instance where he's he's riding along in the Pope Mobile and they stop the Pope Mobile because he gestures and and he invites a kid who looked like he was fourteen or fifteen years old with Down syndrome to climb up in the Pope Mobile and ride around with him. These gestures of openness are 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 just fantastic. And one of the I forgot to give you the other meaning of Pope Francis of the title of our website where Peter is. We mentioned Cardinal Tagle earlier. When Pope Francis went to the Philippines, Tagle gave him a farewell address, gave Pope Francis a farewell address in which he said, the people of the Philippines don't want to see you go, so we will go with you. Mm. Not to Rome, but to the periphery. We want to reach out to all the people on the periphery. And so as the successor of Peter, who's out on the periphery, we want to be where Peter is. We want to reach out to those people on the margin. We want to deliver them the good news. That's really where I see Pope Francis's focus. It can't be this insular community of people discussing 
theology. That's, that's where some of us are, guilty as charged. But for the great majority of people, it's the experience of faith. It's living out the faith. It's seeing people lead by example and being moved to do something like that of their own, to yes. understand where, where Christians find their love and their meaning. So that's, that's something that, that, that transformed my life. Now, my experience with that whole brainiac, let's debate theology stuff, <laughs> but, but my understanding of Pope Francis, I think, is, as we discussed earlier, I want to help build that bridge between people who maybe don't understand where Francis is going with this or how this relates to their previous experience of the faith. And I know that we're making an impact. So I've, yeah. I've been very happy with that. And as we wrap up, I just have one final question. Thank you so much for all your time. Yeah, thank um, you. This is kind of a depressing question, but I, it should be asked. After Pope Francis, who do you think would be Pope? Uh, it's a difficult call to make. Um, pope Francis is approaching his mid-80s. He clearly has some health problems that are bugging him. People didn't think he was going, people thought maybe he would quit after four or five years, resign. That doesn't seem to be the case. We can't have three popes. <laughs> yeah, that's true too. That would just affect everything. If I had to guess, it seems to me that the favorite right now is Cardinal Tagle from the Philippines. I think moving him to Rome was a gesture that resonated with a lot of people. I think his positivity and his relative youth could benefit the church in the long term if the cardinals decide that they want to keep going in this direction, and we never know how it's going to go. Another candidate would be uh, Cardinal Paroline, who is the Secretary of State for uh, the Vatican. And uh, the third, I'll give you three, the third would be uh, Cardinal Michael Cherney, who huh. he's, he's a Canadian. Which would be interesting to have the first pope speaks perfect English. I mean, that would yeah. be something to, to actually hear his words. Unfortunately, I, I mean, Jose, I don't know. Are you fluent in Spanish? Do you speak it? No, Joel speaks better Spanish than oh, I do, too. actually. I mean, what's it like? I, I, I can't imagine what it's like to actually hear the pope speaking clearly in a language that I understand. But he's so he's a Canadian Jesuit who is just a priest. When he was named a cardinal, so they actually, and he was just made a cardinal back in October. So one day they ordained him a bishop, and then the very next day they made him a cardinal. But he has wow. been very influential in the Congregation for Human Development, or the the I forget what the Dicastery for the Development of Peoples, or something. I forget what the name of the Dicastery is, but but very much working uh, with the missions with people in uh, Latin America with the poor. Um, I think his message is very close to Francis's heart. So it would be interesting to see if he became Pope. Very interesting. Can I just ask really quick before we finish, does, does, um, Francis have much pull in, in who gets elected? If he does, uh, I, before I he think dies. that there's, there are a lot of times where a Pope seems to be the heir apparent. I think that was the case with, uh, Ratzinger becoming Benedict the Sixteenth. I think between uh, John the Twenty Third and Paul the Sixth, uh, Paul the Sixth was seen as the heir apparent. It has happened, but there's no saying that it will. Sure, that's right. 
it's sort of like the next presidential election. It looks like this person is due, but in the end it comes, well, and in the Catholic Church we believe it comes down to to who the Holy Spirit allows to become the Pope. So right. uh, we don't know what, he's the God of surprises, so we don't yeah, know what definitely. he has in store for us. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Mike. We appreciate that, and we encourage you, people to, to go out and uh, check out where Peter is, and where can people find you? Wherepeteris.com. And you can also find me on Twitter at MFJ Lewis, Michael Francis James Lewis, MFJ Lewis. So my middle name is Francis. <laughs> I have a particular affinity for him. And it's wherepeteris.com. Wherepeteris.com. Thank you so much. All right. Thank, thank you. you Take care. Because I saw Tiger. Now I understand. I saw Tiger. So during the outro, Jose and I generally like to talk about things we've been watching and reading um, that are of interest to us. And um, this uh, time, I would love to talk about a guy, a pianist from Iceland named Vikingur Olafsson. And he, I usually talk about pop and rock and, and jazz, but this guy is a classical musician and he, I think, is the perfect antidote to a very nervous time. If you listen to his music, you will definitely become calmer. He um, recently put out a great album I want you to listen to, especially if you like classical music, on, on Rameau and Debussy, who are both French. He's a pianist and it's all uh, piano works. He's known for a very spare style. And I think you'll love it. His newest album on Rameau and um, Debussy, really good stuff. If, real quick, too, I would like to mention um, a website out there for those of you looking for good information on coronavirus. It's IHME. Um, it's a, uh, probably the most um, referred to organization for coronavirus um, predictions and um you can find it at healthdata.org, and I just used it constantly. I just love it. So healthdata.org and the great organization called IHME. Nice. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. I, I need to get more data. I'm, you know, really bad about reading about these things secondhand, but, you know, you got to go straight to the source a lot of times with these things. So I, this week, <laughs> my wife and I succumbed to the Tiger King. Uh, which is America's number one show on Netflix. Yes. Which is perfect. He's our savior, if you will, during <laughs> this shelter-in-place boredom. But uh, it's fascinating. It's like watching okay. a slow-moving I've been hearing right. so much about him. You have to tell me exactly what the deal is with him because he is getting so much play right now. So it, it follows this guy named Joe Exotic um, from Oklahoma, as well as some other you know, owners of big cats, tigers, lions, but uh, Joe Exotic, yeah, he's a gay, gun-toting, drug addict, polygamist, magician with a mullet who owns about 227 tigers, and he runs this big cat exotic tiger zoo, basically, and uh, he he makes money off of all of these um, animals. He has these really bizarre exhibits or shows for people to come and see, and they people pay an exorbitant amount of money wow. to uh, pet these cubs or go to these shows. But you see in the course of the show, 
you know, it, it's no longer about the animals, but it becomes about him and the cult of his personality. And uh, one of the main conflicts of the show is this lady, Carol Baskin, who is an animal rights activist trying to shut him down. Well, it turns out that she also owns like a big cat conservatory, if you will. And so he thinks she's basically just this hypocrite who wants to shut down all the big cat owners so that she can have the corner on um, big cat zoos or what have you. And um, what's really fascinating, though, about this rivalry is that he is a, he accuses her of having killed her third husband <laughs> and then feeding his body to the cats, the big cats on her property. And actually, the Internet is just obsessed with this um, case. And they have been inundating the local sheriffs with all their conspiracy theories and whatnot. Wow. Yeah. It, anyway, I don't want to go on and on. Watch a show. It is insane. It eventually, spoiler alert, um, at the end of the first episode, you know, he's calling from prison because eventually he gets to the point where, you know, he hires a hitman to go wow. after him. Okay. I was about to ask you whose side do you fall on, but I guess that kind of answers the question. <laughs> I do want to ask, though, real, really quickly, because yeah. I always put things into a political lens. Is the guy, since he's gay, possibly an animal lover, more liberal or conservative? He's a gun right guy, and is so, it hard to say? Or? The funny thing is, is in 2016, he ran for president, <laughs> and then I believe he dropped out to run for uh, governor of Oklahoma. Oh, my in, gosh. In both cases, he ran as a libertarian. Okay, that makes sense. So it's this weird blend of like, yeah. loves guns, love owning all these animals. He's a polygamist. He's got two husbands, and he keeps Pure them. Americana. In, yeah, there you go. He keeps them in his orbit by you know letting them pet tigers, and he feeds their uh, pot and meth addictions. So wow, it's crazy. I gotta check it out. <laughs> so. Good. All right, that is all for this week. Thank you so much for joining us on our humble little podcast. You could do us a huge favor by subscribing to our show wherever you listen to podcasts, such as Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, or Apple Podcasts. And be sure to rate our show and leave a review. Your rating will help others find this show. And be sure to find us on Facebook and Instagram at Conversation on Tap. Thank you for listening. And thank you, Mike Lewis, Mini. Cheers to wherepeters.com. And uh, we'll see all of you listeners next week. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.